go to John chapter 8 together this morning as we are going to wrap up our series on who is Jesus together today. Uh, as always, um, all the previous messages of this series, they are in iTunes uh, or your favorite pod catcher. You can find them there. Just search for Westlake Baptist Church. But this morning, as we go through John chapter 8 together, before we do that, it's Father's Day, it's only fitting to have at least one baseball story. And there are two names that baseball fans are going to instantly recognize, and as I say those two names, there are going to be vivid movies that, that go through their minds about these two people. Now the first name is Bill Buckner. The year, 1986. The Boston Red Sox are playing the New York Mets in the World Series. A simple ground ball is hit to the Red Sox first baseman, Bill Buckner. And something happened, and it ends up going between his legs. And the Mets score, they tie the game, they go on to win the game. Boston loses the World Series. The curse of the Bambino goes another 18 years before the Red Sox win the World Series. Name number two, Steve Bartman. They're laughing because of who I'm about to reference. Now here's the thing, Bartman was not a ball player. He did what any number of fans now, and including that night, would do. The year, 2003. The Chicago Cubs are playing the Florida Marlins in the National League Championship Series for the right to go to the World Series. There's a foul ball hit down the left field line. The wind at Wrigley is starting to push it uh, into the stands in the left field side. Cubs left fielder Moise Salou is tracking it, and he gets to the wall. He jumps up, and as he does, he's going to lift his glove up to try to make a catch. While all that's happening, Bartman is lifting his hands trying to catch a foul ball. In the process, uh, Bartman knocks and blocks Moise Salou's glove from making the catch. So it's just a long foul ball. The Marlins batter Luis Castillo, he takes advantage of it. In fact, the Florida Marlins score eight runs in that half inning. The Cubs lose the game, they lose the series, and the curse of the goat goes on for another 13 years, bringing the grand total to 108 years between the time the Chicago Cubs would win the World Series. These two men are forever tied to one mistake, one play. Now, think about it, Buckner had a great career. You could even argue he had Hall of Fame statistics. Bartman, by all accounts, he's a nice guy. Works for a financial firm there in Chicago. Yeah. But this is what I didn't tell you about those two stories. They both happened in game six. Now, why does that matter? Well, it's the best of seven. So it wasn't the last game of either of those series. All Boston had to do, all Chicago had to do, was win the next night. And Buckner and Bartman would have been a footnote in a newspaper story long since forgotten. 
But what about you? Have you ever made a mistake? And no matter how long ago it was, people still remember it? Or maybe you still remember it? Do you ever feel defined by that mistake that you made? If you do, you're a good company. Because there's a lot of people in the Bible who have a similar story. But here's one that we're going to study this morning with a twist. See, the one big thing this morning is simply this. That God's grace is more powerful than our sin. Let's look at it together. John chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. You would stand as we honor God's word together. Jesus went under the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have their accuser. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the elders, and even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. Jesus said, No, neither do I condemn thee. Go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is revealed in your word. And now, Lord, I ask that the Holy Spirit will take control of me in this message. Speak only what needs to be spoken. And Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. God's grace is more powerful than our sin. What do we learn about Jesus in this story? The first thing we learn about him is this, that Jesus is the just judge. You see... Because Jesus is God, He's perfect. He is holy. Therefore, He had every right to condemn the woman because of her sin. After all, her sin is never doubted. It's never disputed. It's, it's accepted as a fact. But notice what Jesus says here. He says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Any of you guys ever have a light bulb moment? Like you're reading a... a Bible passage, maybe you've read several times, but all of a sudden something just kind of jumps off the page at you and it's like, whoa, how did I miss that all those times? Love those light bulb moments. I had one actually going through this because when we tell this story, what do we always say? Well, yeah, whoever doesn't have sin, cast first stone, right? That's not what he said, is it? Look at what Jesus says, verse 7. He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus had a very specific person in mind that he's talking about. 
See, who was the only person in their presence who was sinless? So who was perfect? Jesus. So Jesus is going, because I'm God, I am the only one that has the right to condemn her. I'm the only one that can throw a stone at her. And just as Jesus reveals himself to be sinless, notice he is also convicting the crowd of their own sin. So Jesus says that in verse 7. Notice what happens in verse 9. Those who heard it being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one. Starting with the oldest and going to the youngest, they started dropping their rocks and walking away. Why? Because they knew they were guilty of breaking the same law that they were trying to use to condemn which leads me to ask this question are we guilty of the same thing do we cherry pick which sins are going to bother do we condemn this person while getting a pass to this person or maybe even ourselves see Jesus is the just judge and everything he does he is doing what's right But this is really only half the story of who Jesus is in this text. Not only is he the just judge, but Jesus is also the justifier. In his holiness, Jesus could have condemned this woman. Sin demands punishment. A holy God cannot look on sin without judging. We we learn this all the way back in Genesis 18. Probably you've heard of the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus, in a pre-incarnate uh, form, is having a conversation with Abraham, and he's saying, I'm going to go destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to plead with the city. He says, if we can find 50 righteous, what about 40, uh, 20, 10 righteous people, will you not destroy it? And here's how Abraham sums it up in Genesis 18:25. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what's right? Abraham was saying, Lord, if you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the right thing to do. Lord, if you spare Sodom and Gomorrah, that's the right thing to do. This is the attitude that you and I need to have and to understand. (coughs) Excuse me. That whatever God does, whether or not we agree with it or like it, whatever God does, it's right. Because he has a plan behind all of this. What we see is a judge not handing out judgment, but rather extending grace to this woman. I want you to picture this. You get a ticket when you leave here today. You're you're trying to get to a Father's Day meal before everybody shows up. So you probably go a little faster than you should. And all of a sudden, there's a blue light special. You realize I'm not shopping at Kmart, so that's probably not a good sign. So you pull over, you get your ticket, you go to court in a few weeks, and you, you have no idea what to expect. And the judge just looks at you and asks you one question. Did you do it? At this point, you've got, a, you've got a choice to make. Now, you know you're already caught, so you decide you're just going to own it. Yes, Your Honor, I did it. You're expecting the worst. You're you're expecting some big fine and and whatever else. And he's going to say you're guilty and here's your punishment. And that gavel's going to come down 
and you're just going to have a really bad day. So you're, you're kind of closing your eyes, waiting on it, and then all of a sudden the, the judge just goes, okay, I'm not going to condemn you. You're free to go. I'm what? I'm not going to condemn you. You're free. Now notice, the judge didn't say that you didn't do it, did he? He didn't say you're not guilty. He just said, I'm not going to hold you accountable. I'm not going to condemn you for it. Get out of here. Do you notice that's exactly what Jesus does with this woman? Jesus doesn't doubt or dispute her sin. He just simply says, I'm not going to condemn you. In this moment, what is happening is Jesus is forgiving this woman for her sin. See, only the judge can condemn us. And only the judge can let us go free. By Jesus saying to the woman, neither do I condemn you, he is proclaiming, I have the authority to forgive your sins. And in my grace, I am choosing to do this. And so we need to understand this morning that the one who can condemn us is also the only one who can save us. And then Jesus does something even more radical or unexpected. It's the third thing that we learn about Jesus in this text. And it's this. Jesus transforms us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. He asks the question, is it, where, where are your accusers? Nobody condemn you? No, man. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin it was radical enough that Jesus forgave this woman for her sin. But now he says, go and sin no more. I mean, was Jesus honestly expecting this woman to be sinless for the rest of her life? Of course not. Jesus, better than anybody, knew that inside of all of us is a sin nature that is constantly at war with our new nature. She may have been forgiven of her sin, but she was still far from perfect. So is Jesus turning a blind eye to sin? No. Jesus isn't giving her permission to keep sinning. He's giving her a reason to stop living in sin. If you and I were to grasp the greatness of God's grace, if we would understand what Jesus did so that we could be forgiven. Where he would say, I'm not going to condemn you because I died for you. That's not giving us permission to continue to go and do whatever we want to do. Rather, in him doing that, the only proper response is a gratefulness for that grace. If somebody came and did something for you that, that you just weren't expecting and they went above and beyond, what would your reaction be? Thank you. Hey, you'd be overwhelmed by it. And this is what's, what's happening in this story because, because of Jesus' coming sacrifice on the cross, Jesus is changing this woman's story right here. She had been humiliated and shamed and disgraced. And in this moment, 
Jesus is covering her disgrace with his amazing, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. Where sin did abound, his grace abounded more. Do we grasp this? We are all this woman. We can't doubt or dispute our sin. We have the sentence of death in our bodies. Yet in His love and His grace, He stood in our place so that we could be forgiven and declared not guilty, that we're no longer condemned by Him. But what does this story have to do with you and I? I want to give you three things. First, acknowledge your sin. Notice the woman never disputes your sin or her guilt. She never tried to justify what she did, did she? Not once. She, she didn't even go, this isn't fair. Now let's be honest, it wasn't fair. I mean, if the Pharisees, if the religious leaders really cared that much about the law, they would have gotten to low down no good, dirty dog the man, and brought him as well. Notice what it says. It says in in verse 4, in the very act. In other words, it takes two to tango. They didn't just catch her, they caught him, but they only brought her. Why? Because they didn't care about the law, they cared about getting rid of Jesus. How do I know that? Look at verse 6. This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. I mean, she had a justification. This isn't fair. What about the God that I was with? Why isn't he here? But she doesn't do that. Why? Because she knew she did it. She knew there was no justification for what she had done. Furthermore, she knew what she deserved. See, the Old Testament law for adultery... The sentence was death. It was death by stone. And she was caught in the act, and she didn't try to justify it. She said, yeah, I'm guilty. Well, what about us? You know, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, I'm not talking about some generic, yeah, I'm a sinner, I do things wrong. No, no, no. Can we be honest about the specific ways we defy and rebel against the holy God can we acknowledge the truth of our sin now some of you are sitting here going no because you're going to feel condemned for it and and judged and, and you're going to go that would be humiliating for me to acknowledge my specific sin But please hear this, that it's actually the most freeing thing you can do. Because when we keep a secret inside of us, it kills us. We're always looking around, always paranoid that somebody's going to find it out. And here's the reality. God has already found you out. He's already found me out. He knows what we do. He sees us do it before we do it. And yet he says in the very next verse of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated His love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus knew what He was getting when He came to this earth and died on the cross for us. We've got to stop playing games with our sin and we've got to start owning it. My, my kids can tell you they, they hear this constantly. Own it. Not interested in excuses. Own it. You did it, say I did. Because that's going to go a whole lot better than, than if you start playing this blame game. So, are we owning our sin? Because only as we own our sin can we then do the second thing, which is receive God's forgiveness. See, Jesus said the purpose of his first coming was not to condemn the world, but to save the world from their sin. Jesus radically changed this woman's life. She was as good as dead on this day for what she had, for what she had done. But she's not the only one. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. He says, for we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. We are this woman. We are helpless, not hopeless, to change our situation. You know, if you were to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, man, that's bad news. You're dead in your sins and trespasses, condemned. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer, in the study we're, we're watching in our class, uh, he, he put it this way. Hell is not one degree worse than what we deserve. I mean, that, that's really how you sum up Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And then the greatest conjunction in human history is given in Ephesians 2 verse 4. And it says this, but God. Like everything just changed with those two words. But God. Because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus gave this dead woman life. And he is doing the same thing for you and I. As we acknowledge our sin and turn in faith to him, he takes this person who is dead in their sins. <clears throat> he forgives and cleanses of our sins and he breathes life into our bodies. We no longer have to be defined by our sin. We can be defined by who Jesus is. We can receive this forgiveness. But the only way that you can do that is to acknowledge your sin and to place all your faith, all your trust in what Jesus did on the cross. There's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. But Jesus has done it all for us. So what do I do once, once I've acknowledged and once I've received forgiveness? Now I'm a child of God. My sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. What do I do for him here? Well, the last point of application is this. Live a transformed you know, one common objection people give for coming to faith in Jesus is this. There's no way God could love me not after what I've done. You have not sinned so egregiously that the grace of God will not save you completely. Which is to say this, you have not done anything in your life up to this point where Jesus will not fully and freely forgive you 
take you from death into life. Take you from an enemy of God and make you a son or daughter of God. Now that's something we're shouting about. In response to when somebody says, well, God can't love me, we typically go, well, listen, come to Jesus just as you are. He will accept you just as you are. You know, it's absolutely true. Jesus will meet you right where you are. But that's only half the story. The other half of the story is this, that Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. Scripture talks about the uh, doctrine of eternal security. That is, if you're a genuine believer, you're always saved. And so we as humans, we like to come up with cute little acronyms or phrases and stuff. And so you'll hear people say, well, once saved, always saved. How many people ever heard that said? All right, once saved, always saved. Okay. All right. You know what? A lot of people have some uh, objections to that. They go, well, once saved, always saved. What's to stop somebody from just going and living however they want to? All right, yeah, I mean, that's a legitimate question, right? Because let's just be really honest. We have at times claimed to love Jesus and gone out and then done the opposite of what Jesus says we ought to do, right? See, I thought I was going to talk about somebody else. No, no, talk about us. I mean, with that, that charge of hypocrite could be lodged and lobbed at us and we couldn't go, in. nope, that's a lie, right? But see, here's the thing. If we have truly been saved, then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And because of it, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul reminds us that if there's anyone in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so what we see here in that is to be made new means God has given me a new heart and a new desire. When I recognize the exceeding sinfulness of my sin, when I appreciate the gloriousness of God's grace, then I'm not going to want to live the way I used to. I'm going to want to live for Jesus because I understand that my sin grieves God's heart. And because I'm so grateful for what He has done for a wretch like me, I just want to live for Him. But church, we got to understand this. We cannot sing, Oh, how I love God. Jesus on Sunday and then live for Satan in this world the rest of the week. The sins that are named among the world should not be named among us. No, we're not perfect. No, we're not going to get up on some moral high horse and ride around going, hi, I'm better than you are. we're, We're not doing that. But at the same time, we have been given a new heart, a new nature, excuse me, and a new spirit that lives inside of us that wants to please God. If we want to reach the world, they've got to see something different in us. Because then we can tell them who is different in us. And we, we continue to go on and, and, and on. My greatest concern is this that we say we love Jesus but our life denies it that we say we believe that all who die apart from Christ go to hell 
but we don't have an urgency to tell them how they can be saved. We go to heaven. You have a choice this day. A choice I can't make for you. You can be like Bill Buckner and Steve Bart. You can be defined by your sin. You can be defined by your mistakes. Though you would pay a higher price in eternity than what they did temporarily. Or you can be like this woman. You can stop trying to explain your sin away. You can stop trying to say, well, I may not be a good person, but I'm not as bad as that person. And you can acknowledge your sin before God. You can trust that Jesus died for that sin. You can receive His forgiveness and you can be saved with Him. That's the beauty of the, of the gospel. That maybe you've lived 39, 40 years or more in rebellion against God. And this morning you hear the gospel for the first time and you surrender your heart trusting in what Jesus did. From that moment, everything you have done, are doing, and get this, even will do. Scripture says it's taken away, it's removed. And you're saved. You become God's child. So the choice is yours. But to those who are saved, I just want to simply ask a question and we're going to pray. If people look at your life, would they see Jesus? Or are there some things that we need to confess this morning, knowing that God's already forgiven us for them, and then ask Him for help to live for Him, to draw the world to Him. You just stand with me as we're going to pray. Father, as we continue just to go through this time of worship, we thank You for the opportunity that You give us. An opportunity in which we can be saved from our sin. It's not that we deserve it. Father, every one of us stands condemned We're not condemned because of what we do. We're condemned because of who we are. Scripture teaches that we're sinners by birth and by choice. Scripture doesn't say that we're sinners because we sin, but rather we sin because that's what sinners do. And on our own, there's no hope but God. What incredible work, but God. Before the foundation of the world saw the rebellion of Adam, and he saw the rebellion of me and everyone else in this world. And before the foundation of the world, before he spoke it into existence, God had a plan to send Jesus to this earth. And in so doing, make a way for us to be saved. Lord, help us to see that we are this woman. We, we are caught in the very act of sinfulness. We deserve judgment and condemnation. Yet this morning, you are offering everyone grace, forgiveness, a relationship with you. 
Father, to that soul that is the furthest from you. God, I plead that you would save me. And Lord God, even as a Christian, we fall woefully short. So God, I pray if there's any sin that's in our life that we haven't confessed, if there's sin that we're not laying down at your altar and asking and pleading for you to help us with, Lord, would we do that now? That when people see us, they truly see you. Move in this place. Help us, Father, just to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's invitation. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry.